You can open your Bibles to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. Almost everything that we do in life is either learned or copied from others. We often say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery because in life we often mimic the things that we like. Mimicking individuals, whether we know it or not, is common for us all. When I was younger, I was obsessed with the game of basketball. Now, I'm barely old enough to remember the end of Michael Jordan's career with the Chicago Bulls. But I remember watching Jordan with my dad and him explaining to me that this was the greatest basketball player ever. So because of my love for the game of basketball, Michael Jordan immediately earned my respect and my admiration. Now, one of the distinctive features of Michael Jordan's game was the fact that he often stuck his tongue out in the midst of a play. Now, at this stage of my life, I had aspirations of being a professional basketball player. Spoiler alert, it didn't happen, because I'm not good at basketball. But at the time, in an attempt to be like the greatest, or as they often said, to be like Mike, I decided that I was going to start sticking my tongue out whenever I was playing ball. As you can probably imagine, a 10-year-old running around in the driveway with his tongue hanging out doesn't look nearly as cool as I thought it did. I remember playing with some friends, letting my tongue hang out every time that I tried to make a play, and eventually someone stopped me and said, Dude, what's wrong with your tongue? It became clear to me that I didn't look like MJ. I looked like something was severely wrong with me. I awkwardly tried to avoid the question, and from that point forward, determined to keep my tongue in my mouth. It was a 10-year-old's embarrassing attempt to mimic someone that he respected. This happens all the time in life. We mimic people that we respect. We mimic our parents. We mimic successful strategies. We mimic effective techniques. We mimic instructions. We mimic fashion trends. We change things about ourselves to conform to something else. Now, it's not surprising that we would often try to mimic people. Even discipleship in the context of the church is connected to this principle. But what we encounter in Colossians chapter 3, specifically in verse 10, is a stunning statement about a change that is happening in every believer. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. We'll actually get a running start at the second half of verse 9. Paul says, You laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. What Paul just said in Colossians chapter 3 verse 10 is that the new man, the believer, is a person who is in process of being changed. He says that our image is changing, and specifically that image is changing to look more like Jesus. Colossians chapter 3 verse 10 says that we are being renewed, we're being changed according to the image of the one who created him. 
We are being made to look more like the Creator. And Paul is clear in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that the Creator is Jesus. So when Paul says, you and I are being changed, we're being renewed according to the image of the Creator, he's saying that you and I are being changed to look like Jesus. This verse is fascinating. We are being changed to look not just like a better version of ourselves, but to look like someone else. This changing of our image points not so much to our visual appearance as it does to our character. Now the day is coming when we will look like Jesus, which is a shocking and fascinating statement. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, We know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. A shocking statement. Again, this is not a visual appearance, but our character. We will be new, fully new, never again like the old. That day's coming. But right now, Colossians chapter 3 says that right now, we are being changed. We are being renewed to look like Jesus. We are a people that are in process. We are becoming what we one day will be. For the next several verses after Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul explains what it looks like to be made into the image of Jesus now. We know that this is coming one day fully, but Paul expects that we are pursuing that image now. And as he explains what that looks like, it becomes very clear that the new man... The believer, this process of renewal means that we are taking on Christ's character. We take on his, his communicable attributes. Now, let's be clear, we do not become God. We never will. But this verse says that we look like God. Surprising. It almost sounds off a little bit, but... Colossians chapter 3 verse 10 says it clearly. We are to look like the image of the creator. We should look like God himself. We live like Jesus. His character becomes our character. And so the call for every believer that is in this process, every new man is this. Mimic Jesus. You are in process of being changed into his image. And so until you look like him fully, mimic Jesus. Take his character upon yourself. Do what Jesus would do. Now this morning we're going to circle one portion of this passage in which Paul is demonstrating that Jesus' character becomes ours. As Paul communicates that this renewal process looks like Jesus' character becoming ours, he specifically gives three examples of that in verses 15 through 17, which is our text this morning. In our text, 
we're going to see three undeserved ways. Three undeserved ways that we should look like Jesus. This is not an exhaustive list this morning. These are a set of examples that Paul gives of Christ's character becoming our character, of the new man progressively looking more and more like Christ. You can follow along in your Bibles as I read Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Throughout those three verses, Paul makes it clear that there are various parts of Christ's character, of Christ's identity that that begin to infiltrate our lives. They become ours. His character becomes our character progressively. He explicitly gives those three examples. He says we're to have peace, but not just any peace. He says in verse 15, Christ's peace. Whose peace are we to have? It's Christ. In verse 16, whose word is to fill us? It's Christ's word that fills us. In verse 17, in whose name do we do all that we do? It's Christ's name that shines through all that we do. Each one of these verses displaying an aspect of Christ's character that becomes ours if we are in fact being renewed to look like Jesus. So Paul is going to write these words, not encouraging the Colossians that you just sit back and and let Christ's character become yours. That's, That's not what he says here. Every one of these verses is a command. He says, chase these things. Mimic these things. Model your life after the character of Christ. And he gives three examples of ways that we should look like Jesus. The first, in verse 15, is that his peace should rule over us. His peace should rule over us. As Paul is thinking of examples of what it looks like when Christ's character becomes ours, the first thing that he lists is the attribute of peace. Surprising. It's unexpected. We recognize peace as the absence of turbulence. When we think of things that are peaceful, we often think of a, something like a still, isolated lake, a meadow, being in the woods. Peace is often associated with quiet. If you have young children, like my wife and I, peace is that longed-for first moment of calm and silence after the kids have gone to bed. Paul is writing to a church that has struggled with peace. They've struggled with their unity. He's called them in the verses before 15 through 17 to put on unifying attributes that culminate in love. And now in verse 15, he says, put on peace. Take 
the very peace of Christ upon yourself. He calls them to peace. But this is not a peace. This is very important. It's, it's not a peace that comes from isolation. It's not a peace that comes from complete silence. This peace that Paul speaks of is not just the absence of fighting, the way that we often think of peace. A church could be at peace in that sense by just avoiding each other. This is a peace that flows from unity. This is a peace that finds its source in the unifying love of the church. It's a relational peace. The second half of verse 15 emphasizes it. Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, indeed, you were called in one body. It's a peace that you and I were called into together. We are to be in active, unified relationships that are defined by peace. And this peace is not just any peace. Paul says that we are to be ruled by the very peace of Jesus Christ himself. Which is a significant statement. It's a significant statement. Not just be at peace, but take the very peace of Christ upon you. The peace of Christ was on display in both his teaching and in his conduct. Jesus taught on peace regularly. He said if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. And he modeled that for us. Jesus was struck and yet he did not strike back. He was attacked and he did not fight back. He was killed. He did not despise his murderers. He modeled peace, not hostility. Now let's be clear on this topic. Jesus was not at peace with everyone. There were people that hated Jesus. Jesus even said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, meaning that to follow Jesus might mean a divide in certain relationships. But Jesus demonstrated his peace in his forgiveness, in his compassion, in his generosity, in his love. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus taught, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons of God. Jesus placed a massively high priority on the attribute of peace, so much so that in that text in Matthew, he ties the attribute of peace to salvation. Sons and daughters of God are known by peace. The peacemakers are the sons of God. And Jesus, the Son of God, was the ultimate peacemaker. And as much as we are like him, we become a people of peace. Now, the peace of Christ should impact all of our lives, every aspect of our lives. But what Paul is specifically focusing on in this verse is not just peace broadly, but specifically he's focusing on relationships within the church. In other words, what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, is that our relationships within this body must be relationships of unified peace. Not hostility, not hatred, not turbulence, fighting, frustration. 
unified peace. When you identify divisive relational attitudes within them, when you identify divisive thinking, divisive heart attitudes within you, you must confront them. Recognize them as the antithesis of being conformed to the image of Christ. We must be ruled by unified peace. We must pursue unified peace. And peace is not a small feature of our relationships. This isn't some tiny nuance of the Christian life that Paul is pointing to. I love Paul's terminology here. Look again to verse 15. He says, let the peace of Christ rule. Let it rule you. This is aggressive terminology. It, the, the terminology is actually a bit ironic. We often think of peace as a very passive attribute. Paul says, let it rule. Let it reign over you. These are controlling and dominating terms. We don't often think of peace and dominance as belonging together, but Paul brings them together. Paul speaks of the impact of the peace of Christ on the church's relationship in a dominating way. It should rule you. It should reign over you, Paul says. Let peace dominate you. Let it control you. It's the terminology that he employs on this topic. So how do we do that? How do we let ourselves be ruled by the very peace of Christ? Well, it starts with an inward heart focus. Embracing the peace of Christ and letting it reign over us starts with an inward heart focus. Look at where Paul directs our attention to this controlling influence of peace in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule where? In your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It's fascinating, the The heart is the focus here. To let peace rule, we must have an internal focus. Which again is an unexpected comment by Paul. We often think of peace as controlling the sinful, divisive attitudes that may appear within us. We think of peace, I'm doing my part in pursuing peace if I am not doing what my flesh desires to do. We may think of peace as not saying the unloving words that come to mind. But that's not the kind of peace that Paul is targeting here. Well, what I just described is more accurately called self-control. Controlling our sinful desires. But peace and self-control are not the same thing. Paul targets peace in the heart. Peace that rules in our hearts means that we don't just control anger towards others. It means we correct it when we find it in our hearts. We are to confront within our thinking, within our attitude, within our hearts, we are to confront 
the very desires and motivations that erode the unified peace of the body. Controlling it from coming out is not enough. Paul says, let it reign within you. There's an internal heart focus. We must embrace. We must embrace peace in our hearts together. We were called at Mission Road Bible Church into one body for this very purpose. Look at verse 15 again. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. It's a shocking statement. What what were we called together for as a church? What is the goal of our being drawn together into one church? There's lots of answers to that question. But in this verse, Paul says, the goal of your being drawn together into one church is peace. It is that we would display Christ's peace in our unified and loving relationships together. You are in this body. You are in this body to demonstrate the peace of Christ to one another that stems from hearts that are being conformed to the image of Christ. His peace must reign here. It must reign among us. We were brought together to be at peace. Paul finishes this verse with a call to be thankful. Look at the last few words of verse 15. And be thankful. I think that this brief command is in the context of the, of the call to peace. We are to be thankful for our relationships. We are to be thankful for one another. We're to be thankful for the opportunity that we have to demonstrate the peace of Christ towards each other. Thankfulness for one another will lead to peace with one another. Said another way, when we lose our thankfulness for one another, peace quickly erodes behind it. So thank God for the relationships that he has given you in the church. Let peace rule in your hearts with a spirit of thankfulness. That brings us to a second undeserved way that we should look like Jesus. The first is that his peace should rule over us. The second is that his word should live in us. His word should live in us. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The next part of Christ that appears in our lives is His Word. 
His word. When Paul refers to the word of Christ, he's referring to the message of Christ. Paul most specifically has in mind here what Christ taught. Let what Christ taught dwell within you. He, he thinks of the message of Christ, interestingly, as a singular thing. He doesn't say, let the words of Christ dwell within you, but rather, let the word of Christ. It's a singular thing. He doesn't, he doesn't emphasize the plural here, but a unit. He speaks of the message that Christ preached. I think today, it's not a stretch to think of your Bible as what Paul is referring to here. It's the message of Jesus. It's his word. It's the word of God. Paul says his word, his message, should dwell within us. Your dwelling is your home. It's where you live. Paul's terminology is that the word of Christ, that biblical truth, doesn't just occasionally pass us by. It doesn't just appear every once in a while. It lives in us. It's always there. It doesn't leave. It it dwells within us. We are people that are filled with biblical truth. In fact, Paul doesn't just say that it should dwell within us, but specifically, look again at verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within within you. That word richly means in abundance, in, in a surplus. Christ's word lives in us abundantly. It lives in us overwhelmingly. What does it mean for the word of Christ to overwhelmingly live within us? It means that we're people who are filling our minds with biblical truth. We're filling our minds with biblical truth. We are thinking about it. We are processing life through a biblical filter. We are trying to learn God's word more. It means we love God's word and we are committed to it. But it's not just that. Paul's command here extends far beyond our personal commitment to biblical truth. Just like our first point this morning, this command is meant to be applied in the context of the local church. The you in this verse, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, that you is plural. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you all, among you all. In other words, Paul means that the word of Christ richly dwells amongst us as we live together if we are being conformed into the image of Christ. The primary expression of the word of Christ overwhelmingly dwelling within us is in our relationships. That's what Paul's saying here. The primary expression of the word of Christ overwhelmingly, richly dwelling within us is in our relationships. In other words, our relationships should be filled with biblical truth, filled with the word of Christ. It should have a rich presence in our conversations. Now, this is challenging. This this doesn't come naturally to many of us, so... 
what Paul does in the rest of this verse is he gives us some examples of ways that we do this, of ways that we let the word of Christ richly fill our conversations and our actions in our relationships as a body. Specifically, in verse 16, he gives two examples of the word richly dwelling within us. He gives two examples here of the word richly dwelling among us in our relationships. The first is that we teach each other. We teach each other. What does it look like for the word, for the word to abundantly fill our relationships as a body? We teach each other. Look again at verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. There's two words that Paul uses there. They're translated teaching and admonishing. The word teaching is instruction. Now, what I'm doing right now, what we often would think of as instruction in the context of the church is, is what happens from, from a pulpit. But teaching, instruction in the church should extend far beyond just the pulpit ministry. Teaching is a ministry that every believer, every new man, every member of the body gives to one another. We are to teach each other. We are to instruct each other in biblical truth. We are all teachers called to be speaking biblical truth into one another's lives. Paul uses another word. He says we are in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another. The word admonishment is, is to counsel someone or to, to guide someone away from danger. If you are a part of the body of Christ, you are to help guide and counsel others in the body in light of Scripture's warnings. That's what this verse says. We are to help guide and counsel one another in light of Scripture's warnings. What Paul is saying to the church at Colossae and what Paul would say to us is that you are all teachers. You are all counselors. Why do we all need to be teachers and counselors? Because you and I need help. We need help seeing where God's word hits us individually. We need help. We, we often have blinders to where God's word connects with our life individually. We're often blind to our own sins and we need to help guide each other. Also, we are often forgetful of biblical truth. And so we need to remind each other of how God's word informs our lives. Teaching is a formal role in the church. There are certain individuals that are set aside to teach. But do not fall into the trap of thinking that teaching and counseling is a professional endeavor. It's not. Teaching and counseling are not professional endeavors within the church. 
Every Christian is to be a counselor. Every Christian is to be a teacher. How are we to teach? How are we to instruct and counsel one another? Paul gives a descriptor of our teaching and counseling in verse 16. He says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. In other words, we don't teach each other or counsel each other from a position of foolishness or ignorance, but from the wisdom that comes from God's word. I think in that phrase, what Paul is telling everyone is to to be a student of God's word so that you can teach and counsel wisely from the word of Christ. This is one example of what it looks like when the word of Christ richly dwells in a body. It isn't just a church that loves sermons. It's a church that proclaims biblical truth within our relationship. That may mean sharing something that has been helpful for you. That may mean confronting sin in another. That may mean talking about application of a sermon. But whatever it looks like, biblical truth should be spoken of within our relationships in this church. It's one way that the word of Christ richly lives among us. There's another way that's emphasized in this verse, not just our teaching to one another, but also our singing to one another. We also let the word of Christ richly dwell within this body as we sing to one another. Look again at verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, there is some difficulty in translating this verse. Some believe that Paul is making one point here. I've emphasized two separate points that Paul is making in teaching and singing. Some believe that Paul is making one point here, that we teach each other through our songs. And that is certainly true. Ephesians chapter 5 makes that abundantly clear. We teach one another through our songs. But I think in this verse, Paul is actually making two separate points here. The ESV translates translates that, I think, a little bit more appropriately, I think the correct way in distinguishing between two ways that the word richly dwells among us, in our teaching and in our counseling, and in our singing. Our singing is a corporate church event. We've sung together this morning. And in this verse, Paul says that our singing is one of the ways that Christ's word abundantly lives among us. Our corporate singing should accurately communicate biblical truth. At MRBC, we have wonderful men like Pastor Aaron and Chris who led us this morning and others who do a wonderful job at putting biblical truth before us. When we are singing together, proclaiming biblical truth as one body, we are, make no mistake, we are causing God's word to richly dwell among us. I love the singing at our church. You all sing so well. It's such an encouragement to hear the body sing together. I don't think at our church that it's, that it's ever intended to be, to be showy. It's meant to place a biblical truth culminating in the person of Christ at the forefront of our worship. 
For many of us, singing is unnatural. If that's you, recognize that singing is a ministry of the body to one another. We are coming together to do a serious thing. We are coming together to set the word of Christ as that which richly dwells among our worship together. The way we do that is by singing biblical truth. And it's worth pointing out while we're in this verse that 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 can take lots of different stylistic forms. Paul specifically mentions in verse 16, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. There's different types of songs that the church sings, different styles of songs that the church sings. We don't know exactly what differentiated those three types of songs in verse, verse 16, but there was some level of musical diversity. What matters amongst the body is not so much the exact style of a song or the instruments involved, but rather the truth that it proclaims. And we proclaim that truth well when it flows from thankfulness in our hearts. Paul specifically says that the the word of Christ dwells among us well when we sing from a heart of thankfulness. Look again at verse 16. With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In our singing, we must be thankful for what he's done. And out of that thankfulness, we rehearse and lift up praise to God. In this verse, we have singing that is in spirit and in truth. It is in spirit because it's flowing from a heart of thankfulness. It is in truth because it is the the word of Christ that is being lifted up. So sing. Sing, even if it isn't natural for you. Even if it's not your favorite style on a given Sunday. Cause the word of Christ to richly dwell amongst this body by proclaiming the word of Christ together in song. You are an an administer of biblical truth. You play an active role. Every one of us plays an active role in making the word of Christ dwell amongst this body. We teach each other. We counsel each other. We sing to each other. And that brings us to a third example, a third undeserved way that we should look like Jesus. Number three, his name should shine through us. His name should shine through us. This third way is quite broad. It's very all-encompassing. I think in this verse, Paul is is zooming out and and kind of wrapping up this portion of the book of Colossians. He's talked about our relational peace. He's talked about our word ministry to one another. And now he says in verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Paul zooms out here to a command that encompasses all that we do, whatever we do. The call in this text is to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does it mean to do something in someone's name? There is, there is a certain significance in a name. When we hear a name, what comes to mind almost always is is a person. 
in an environment like this, if I were to say the name Patrick, many of you would think of the quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs. When I say a name like John, you may think of a person you know whose name is John. I would imagine you know several and that one first pops into mind. Alyssa is my wife's name. When I think of her name, I think of her. I certainly don't think of the letters that make up her name. I don't think of all of the Alyssas that I have ever met. I think of my wife, the person that the name points to. It's exactly what's going on in this text. When Paul calls us to do everything in the name of Jesus, he's pointing us not specifically to the name in and of itself, but to the person behind the name. The name is the person. So Jesus' name, who he is, his character, his identity, his authority, Paul says he should appear, he should shine through in everything that we do. Said another way, the character and authority of Jesus should shine through our life. Paul says that this should happen in whatever we do, in word or deed, in what we say, in what we do. What Paul is saying in this verse is is the point that we started at this morning. We should look like Jesus. His character should shine through us. His character becomes our character. His peace rules over us. His word lives in us. His name shines through us. And it's all encompassing. It's all encompassing. This command is almost surprising. Feels unrealistic. How do we do this? As we identify areas in our life that don't look like Christ, we confront them and we turn from them. There's there's no limits on that. Paul says, in whatever you do, it should look like Jesus. It's it's all-encompassing. How do we let the name of Christ shine through everything we do? It starts with avoiding sin. In, in everything that we do. If we are sinning in a certain event, we certainly aren't letting the character of Christ shine through that event. But there's another thing that Paul emphasizes. Certainly, we should not sin in anything that we do, but Paul emphasizes, again, a surprising element of how we do all things in the name of Christ. Look again at the end of verse 17. Giving thanks through him to God the Father. Here Paul says that one of the primary ways that we do everything in the name of Jesus is that we do everything from a spirit of thankfulness. You cannot do all things in the name of Jesus if thankfulness does not accompany your words and your actions. We are to be a people of thankfulness, thankful for salvation, thankful for God's blessings in our life. It is in a spirit of thankfulness that we can do all things in the name of Jesus. God is glorified when we enjoy what he has given and return thanks to him for it. Be thankful in everything as you do everything in the name of Jesus. Thankfulness is a fascinating theme in these verses and it's a significant theme in the book of Colossians. 
I'm going to read these verses one more time, verses 15 through 17. I want you to listen specifically for the theme of thankfulness that runs through all three of them. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. As we pursue Christ's peace, we must do it in a spirit of thankfulness. As we pursue Christ's word, we must do it in a spirit of thankfulness. As we portray Christ in all that we do, we must do it in a spirit of thankfulness. If Christ's character is to become our character, the natural response is one of gratitude. That's why in our outline, we called these three undeserved ways. Each of these ways that we get to look like Jesus are undeserved. They're a privilege. And we should seek to mimic Jesus with thankfulness as we are changed to look like him. It is amazing, amazing that we would get to look like Jesus.